Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show podcast, where we dig into topics large and small related to our mission, making work more fit for humans and all of us humans more capable of doing great work. You can learn more about humanizing work and the Humanizing Work Company at humanizingwork.com. In this episode, Richard and I have a conversation with Luke Homan. I first became aware of Luke through his Innovation Games book, which shares a set of collaborative games to better understand customers. Many of us in the Agile community used some of the innovation games like Sailboat as frameworks for retrospectives as well. Some of the innovation games were also used for civic engagement. For example, the city of San Jose, California, used a modified version of Buy a Feature to help prioritize the city budget with volunteers from across the community for several years in a row. Now, I participated in this process a few times, and it continues to be one of the few positive examples of real improvement in how government works. We'll link to an article about this process in the show notes. Luke has a long history in software development, going back to his time at EDS. He was an early and important contributor to what we now think of as the Agile community. His earliest book, Journey of the Software Professional, was written in 1996 and has a foreword by the late, great Jerry Weinberg. And his second book, Beyond Software Architecture, which was published in 2003, uh, Another great book. Both of these are under-the-radar gems if you're involved in agile software development in any way. Luke created Contenio, an enterprise software platform for collaborative decision-making based on game theory. Now, Contenio's platform allowed customers to use innovation games and other collaborative frameworks online and at scale. Contenio was sold to Scaled Agile Framework Incorporated in 2019 and Luke helped shape the safe product management approach during his time there. In July of 2020, Luke founded First Root, a company whose mission is to, quote, create financially literate children capable of transforming their communities as they become financially independent adults through creativity, communication, critical thinking, collaboration, and civics, which Luke refers to as the five C's. So First Root's products enable youth to use participatory, uh, participatory budgeting to invest real money in their schools. And then they use those five C's and work on those as they experience true agency and stewardship over their futures. They get to learn through their own experience how money really works. A little known fact about Luke is that he was also an elite level ice skater as a teenager, which we dig into a bit during the discussion. Luke is one of the most genuine mission-driven people that I know. He's opinionated and humble. He's a personal example to me of grit and of being a good husband, father, and citizen while working hard at a meaningful purpose. We hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Luke, so good to see you. Thank you for being here today. Uh, It's a great honor to be with such great friends. Thank you. Um, I want to go way back in, uh, in my first question here because you've shared with me that you spent a lot of time as a very young man, as an elite athlete. Um, would you tell us a little bit about that experience, what specifically you were up to, and then how that experience shaped who you are today? Sure. Uh, when I was uh, 11, uh, growing up outside of Buffalo, New York, they built a skating rink near my house. And I was looking for something to do because I was the youngest of six kids and my older brothers and sisters all played basketball and they were all really pretty good at it and they were all huge compared to me so basketball wasn't fun and uh, I started trying skating and I got totally hooked and I started figure skating which of course is a natural fit for computer science is figure skating you just think (laughs) computer science figure skating they fit Um, but uh, I got I got really hooked on it and hooked to the point of uh, I just love doing it Um, and I learned tenacity and and persistence in a really profound way when I started skating and I started getting coaching, my first coach was very kind and said, you know, basically this sport isn't for you. You're not very good. You should try a different sport, maybe baseball. And so I got a different coach and my second coach after a couple of months said, you know, this sport, we know you're really working hard and, and you really like it, but maybe this sport isn't your sport. And, uh, but I really liked it. I, and so I kept skating and eventually I did find um, a coach who thought, hey, you could you could maybe do this. And so I skated and kept skating for a number of years 
and eventually worked my way up. And I was the national junior pairs figure skating champion in 1985. Uh, there's two levels, junior and senior. And then I moved up to senior and I got up to the uh, senior eighth class. So I was the eighth best pairs skater in, uh, in the United States when I retired. And I was on the international team and did some international skating. So what you would now know as the uh, ISU circuit Things like Skate America or Skate Canada, I was at that level, and uh, it was a it was a blast uh, to do that, and a real gift and a real honor. And and so then you asked, well, how does that shape me now? And uh, I think that there's a number of things about being an elite athlete or or being disciplined, if you will, that feed into agile, right? And then there's just so many. Um, uh, a lot of Agile is about discipline, right? It's not always fun to write your tests, but we write them. And it's, you know, as much as I love skating, I can't say that every practice was fun, but if I wanted to compete, uh, I needed to practice. Uh, there's a, uh, we do a lot of retrospecting in um, uh, Agile. Well, and, and that's what you hire a coach for. And, and I'm always cautious about the Agile coaching community because a lot of coaching is, is a lot of snake oil. And I know a bit about coaching because I spent thousands and thousands of dollars being coached. And I know what it means to be coached at an elite level by elite coaches. But a lot of it is very analytical. A lot of uh, data driving the performance. Um, you, you see it sometimes in more celebrated sports like uh, downhill skiing. They'll show you pictures of skiers in wind tunnels working on their tuck. Uh, in when I was pair skating, the, the big innovation for us was video cameras that were small enough that we could bring them into the rink and get real time uh, visual feedback on how we were doing a move. So there's a lot of performance and retrospection. There's a lot of data. Uh, my skating coach, when we would do our routines leading up to a competition, we had a notebook. And when we did our routine, uh, if we did everything uh just like kind of normal, we'd get a dash. If we missed something, we'd get a minus. And if we did really well, we would do pluses. And then he would kind of graph it. And if he felt we were peaking too soon, we would start to slow down uh, our practices because the data suggested we were not maybe timing our peak. Uh, because skating is a is among the sports where you don't get multiple tries, right? It's It's like the Super Bowl. You get one shot. And you better be your best on that day. And, and if you're not practicing towards that day, you're, you're not going to be um, uh, prepared. Uh, so there's a lot to me, uh, and I could go on, but there's a lot of parallels to, to how elite performance works uh, and uh, high quality uh, agile practices and, and a lot of, uh, of strong um, uh, routines and, and regularity and discipline that, that go into that. I think, Luke, there's also something in your, well, at least in your personality at the age of 11 or 12, where you were enjoying doing something and people were telling you, you ought to get out of this. And you said, no, I'm going to find somebody else who will help me here. And I think that there are some echoes of that in your career as well that maybe we'll get into <laughs> here. But I think that there's even that other part of it, like somebody saying you should stop doing this doesn't cause you to stop doing it if you believe it's something you should be doing. Yeah, like the people who said Innovation Games were an awful name and would never work and would never be successful. <laughs> yeah, there were a few of those. Yep. Um, it, things like things that. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's not a thing until it's a thing. Um, and, and I, but I want to caution everyone on that, and and I think that this is really an interesting mix. I, I do not believe that self belief is only what you need, or or the, mm -hmm. it, that that's it. I, I mean, I give a, I often give uh, career talks to high schools that allow me to or invite me to, and I always find that when I go to those talks, they become so much more filled with gratitude than anything else. And, and I, and in fact, when I feel everyone's like, Oh, Luke, you're always so happy. Well, yes, I'm generally happy because I do work. I love with people I respect. However, I'm also human. And sometimes I, I can get a little down too, or a little, uh, you know, like something doesn't go well. And I find that the fastest way for me to snap out of any uh, feeling like that is I go for what I call a gratitude run. So I like to go, for, I still maintain a fitness level, 
and I, I go for a run and I think about gratitude. And what I mean by gratitude is I talked about skating, right? That first coach that said, yes, I think you could do that. And then when I went uh, to, to move to Detroit to train from Buffalo, the, the coach there is like, I think you can get to nationals. And when I went to um, uh, Michigan and I worked with my professor and, and they thought I could do something. So I, I think that there's a number of times in your career where your belief in yourself gets you going, but what really kind of pushes you over the edge or pushes a team over the edge is belief. And, and I think that that's something we sometimes miss. Uh, I don't have to know if someone is going to be able to do something because I have something often more powerful. I believe they can do it. And belief in others is is this amazing, powerful thing. And I think sometimes we have to learn. I, I was talking about data, but data on a team and data on a team performance is important. But belief in a team is is even more important. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you mentioned like it's an unlikely connection from that to software development. How did that happen? Well, I uh, when I was in high school. Uh, we had a computer and I, I uh, took a computer programming class in high school and I liked it. So there is a, a deeper recurring theme here. I do do things I like and I avoid things I don't. <laughs> and I, start, I liked computers. I liked programming. I liked uh, the idea of thinking of something and then making it happen. I like I liked the idea that you could have something in your mind and you could make it a reality just by programming it. And that's yeah. intrinsically cool. I, I also, when I was in high school, I took a lot of architecture and kind of drawing and design classes. And I also learned that I wasn't as good as I needed to be to be a good architect. Like I was okay, but I wasn't great. And I found that I had a better knack for software. And um, so we it is true that we do things that we like and part of the reason we like them is that there's some intrinsic uh, ability, right? Designers are designers because they're kind of good at it. Database, uh, database optimization professionals are kind of good at it because they get data. And, and there's just these there's these tiny little reinforcing loops that happen. We we talk about T-shaped people. Well, why did you choose that part of the T to get good at? Well, there's probably a little bit of a reinforcing loop that you enjoy that part of of the technical part, and then you want to get better at it. So. We, we should spend more time allowing ourselves to get good at the things we're good at and then balancing those things in the teams that we create. Yeah. Uh, so your was your first experience outside of high school with going to school, did you know you wanted to go into like, because I think that was your associates, right? Was in computer science? Yeah. So I had a, a when, when high school ended, I had an option to go to college and I was struggling to make the decision between skating and, and, and going to a four-year university. And I, I kind of uh, talked it over with my mom and I said, look, I, I can go to school at any time, but I can only skate when I'm young because it's a you know, any athlete is, is it's a, any athletics endeavor at that level is a, is a, is a demanding thing. And so we kind of struck a deal. She said, well, you know, how about we go to a community college? Cause I was still living at home. And uh, so I went to a community college, Erie community college, and, and I got my associate's degree in computer science. And that's uh, when I was 20, I moved to Michigan uh, and I went to Michigan to skate and train full time at the Detroit Skating Club. Now, taking a step back, uh, in the United States, there's a small number of, in a sense, powerhouse training centers for figure skating. One of them is the Detroit area. And you actually see on the nationals or international teams, you'll see a lot of dance teams and a lot of pair teams coming from Detroit. And that's another kind of fundamental truism. Like, what did I learn in business? Well, I learned that uh, there are these kind of concentrations of people. You see it in Silicon Valley where there's innovation or you see it in Tel Aviv where there's concentrations in innovation. You see it in London where there's concentration uh, in financial services in New York City and financial services. And that's because humans are tribal and we do want to uh, be together. And, and more importantly, when you want to be elite in something, you need to train with other people who are elite. I, in Jordan's recent documentary, you see him when he wanted to go back into basketball from baseball, they, they built a gymnasium for him when he was filming Space Jam. And then they started, the, the Disney people were astonished because he's practicing with the other pros. Well, 
who is Michael Jordan going to practice with, right? He's not going to practice with a bunch of high school kids. And so, you know, when I was training in, in skating, I was training literally with the people that I was competing with because who else am I going to train with? I can't train with, with sub-elite skaters, if you will, to be elite. Um, and you see that in, in and again, in, in, in kind of the elite teams that we create and, and the organizations. And so um, I moved to Detroit to train and then I started working full time. Uh, I had a couple of part-time jobs doing some obscure programming and some other work. And then I landed a job at Electronic Data Systems uh, in, in, uh, in 1985. And uh, uh, for the listeners, uh, um, Peter, Peter and I were talking about it. And, and Peter suggested in an email that, oh, what was your first programming job at EDS? Oh, no, 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 no. My first job at EDS was uh, I was called a floor grub. And you might wonder, what's a floor grub? Well, in data centers, uh, there's raised floor and the, the cabling for the computers goes underneath the floor. And, and so my first job was crawling underneath floor to cable computers in an EDS data center. And I was doing networking that to this day, no one remembers because now the world's networking is basically the internet, right? TCP, IP. But I was doing stuff that you may never even heard of, SNA, uh, which is Systems Network Architecture from IBM, X25, ISDN, um, um, uh, 12, Hayes 1200 and 2400 modems. And I was designing and cabling and networking infrastructure. So my first job, I, I joke that a lot of people say, oh, I worked my way from the ground up. And I'm like, that's good. I worked my way from beneath the ground up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. I mean, it's actually true. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> uh, how long? How long did you stay in that role? Uh, let's see. I was well. I, it was a good role for me because um, when you move these mainframe computers, you you the, you have to move them very quickly in the data center. So you 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 the the, the raised floor is several feet, and what you do is you lay all the new cable. And then when you when you're moving a computer, you turn it turn it off, you uncable it, you move it, and you recable it, and all the old cable is left in the floor. So then you go in and you have cable pulling parties. And I was really, you know, I'm making minimum wage in Detroit, and so we would go into the data centers. Uh, I would train, and then on Saturday nights when training was done, uh, uh, we would go to the data center, and from twelve at night until six in the morning, we would go pull dead cable from the floor. And I did it because I got double time, man. I got, I got two, I got double wage. Living the dream. Oh, man. Man. <laughs> and they gave you pizza. So I got double time in pizza and it was the best. Right. Um, but I did that. I'd say I did that for, I, I, no one's ever asked me that. So it was a while ago, but I did that for at least a year. And then I mm. got a job doing uh, um, network troubleshooting um, and uh, working and then um, I moved into uh, uh, doing uh, personal computers uh, at the time of like IBM PCXT kind of things. And then from there, I, I, I managed to do a few other things and, and my career progressed. Yeah. So you were at EDS for a little less than 10 years, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like nine and a bit. So you can round up to 10. Uh huh. Yeah. And by the time you left EDM, you were a VP. You moved up pretty quickly in that large organization. Yeah, I was a VP um, of a subsidiary uh, that did uh, credit uh -huh. card processing for truckers. So um, we did a customized mm -hmm. uh, debit and credit card for trucking industry. Um, so we had our own transaction processing network. We had our own terminals inside of truck stops. Uh, we were using uh, tandem cyclones, which were pretty cool uh, computers, the first fault tolerant computers. Uh, there was some pretty cool tech there, uh, although there was some interesting <laughs> challenges uh, that I was brought in on. Um, uh, and what I would say is in my career at EDS, uh, once again, it it's filled with gratitude. Um, I got a few lucky breaks. I had some people believe in me, uh, when skating stopped, I got the chance to work on, um, the first expert system technologies that EDS was employing, uh, met my best friend, Dan O'Leary, uh, at EDS, um, and Peter, you know, Dan, cause you know, he and I have stayed together for decades and he was the CTO at uh, Centennial. Um, mm -hmm. 
if we went to school together at Michigan, and and I think the the, the radical thing was um, the, to complete the story. Uh, I met Vern Olson, who's this kind of famous guy at EDS. He's just this amazing manager, best leader I ever worked for. Just this amazing person, and uh, we did expert systems work together. And then I was going to leave EDS to go to school. And he's like, why would you leave? And I said, well, I always wanted to go to school and then get my degree. And he said, what are you going to get your degree? And I'm like, well, the only thing I can afford is uh, physical therapy. So I'm going to become a physical therapist. And he goes, no, 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 no. You just did all this expert systems work. And he he created a deal for me where um, he said, here's the deal. EDS is going to send you to school. And we're going to pick the school and we're going to pick the degree. And for every year that you go, you'll trade a year of employment to to pay us back. And I'm like, cool. Where am I going to school? What degree am I going to get? And he said, you're going to go to the University of Michigan and get a computer engineering degree. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Nice. Which was fantastic, right? And and so it's another opportunity to to, to where someone believes in you and and breathes life into something that you're doing. Um, uh, and that was great. Now, after, after I finished school, I moved from Detroit to, to Dallas, continued to progress in my career. And, uh, uh, near the end of my career at EDS, I started being handed projects that were broken. And my job was to either, uh, shut them down as humanely as I could, or, uh, see if I could turn them around, um, uh, and one of the precursors to me in Agile was I was given this uh, project that was really broken. And at the time, EDS had a waterfall method known as the system development lifecycle. And you guys know SDLCs are very, well, EDS had a massive system development lifecycle. And I'm not kidding. I made this presentation to a bunch of really high ups at EDS on this project that I was asked to turn around. And what I had done was I printed all of the documentation of the EDS SDLC. And I put it behind a podium and then, and I had to make this talk and this, and this is the days of, you know, you're in a room and there's a podium and the thing and you're on a stage and whatever. And the leadership meeting that I was giving, given to talk at kept on being delayed. So I, I finally got the heads up like, okay, we're really delayed. You're probably going to have 10 minutes you know, make it good. So I sketched out what the system needed on a napkin. And when I got to go up to the podium, I had printed out a copy of the EDS SDLC behind the podium. And I stood up and I said, look, and I moved the podium over. I said, I know I don't know as much about software as the collective wisdom of this room. But what I do know is that when the prescriptive advice when printed outweighs me, it's not right. So everyone knows that every great system can be explained on a napkin. Here's the napkin of what we're going to build. If you have any questions, we're getting drinks later. Come talk to me. And this is what we're going to build. And the room just erupts in laughter and clapping. And we fixed the system. Um, That's great. Now, I wasn't always able to fix systems, right? Because sometimes there are problems that are not appropriate or, or shouldn't be fixed. But I, I tended to be known for um, uh, willing, at least willingness to try to fix things. And that was the last position that I had at EDS at the, at the, at the credit card bureau. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a challenging environment. Um, uh, and uh, it, it, there, there was a number of things that were fairly broken. And, and some of the precursors of the innovation games were invented there, uh, believe it or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. To, to help those projects that were, yeah. that were struggling. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned Vern as um, a mentor of yours, your, your favorite leader of all time. And you mentioned his belief in you and his willingness to support your growth. What other kind of characteristics or, or behaviors did you notice from Vern that were so powerful for you in your own development? Oh, well, I'll tell you one of the stories um, that, I mean, there's so many stories with Vern. Um, I, I worked in his service, uh, for five years. Uh, and, uh, and, um, uh, Vern, Vern was the creator 
of the EDS Systems Engineering Development Program. So it was the massive program that EDS used to build an, a, 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 a whole workforce of like-minded people. And he, he, he was the designer of this. And so he was not, I, it's not like I felt that way about Vern. It's like everyone felt that way about Vern because he had that kind of effect. But I remember one time I was working on a project and I needed to get it done. So I go in to EDS at night and I needed to recable part of Vern's office because we were breaking ground. We were using Sun workstations at EDS, which was a IBM mainframe. And this was the days, the early days of, of TCPIP and Ethernet net networking, and none of the wiring worked at EDS because it was all this different Ethernet stuff. So I needed to get into Vern's office and get this done, right? So it's Saturday night. So of course, what do I do? I pop open the the uh, tiles at the roof and I crawl into his office, effectively breaking in to his office, right? To recable his office. And I'm in there and, it, and it's, in, it's in the night. Now, EDS security at the time, uh, there, there's a, I don't know, if, did you ever hear of the story of, uh, uh, did you ever read the book or hear the, see the movie On Wings of Eagles? I haven't. Okay, no. if you want a leadership story that is legend at EDS, when um, the Shah of Iran fell, there were six EDS employees in Iran, and they were kidnapped. And Ross Perot went to the State Department and said, you need to help me get them out. And they said, we can't. And Ross Perot said, yeah, I don't think so. So he hired a set of ex-Green um, uh, Berets from the United States military, trained them and supported them, and, and funded them uh, totally like born identity helicoptering into Iran to rescue his employees. That's a leadership story right. that you don't see much. And if you want to watch a great movie or read a great book, read Ken Follow, you know what? Read On Wings of Eagles. Now, after that was done, the Ayatollah put a um a death sentence on Ross Perot. So then Ross Perot had to have security guards. So when I talk about EDS security, you need to think X-Green Beret carrying 357 mags kind of stuff, right? So now mm -hmm. I'm in ED, I'm in Vern's office. I, I break in. I'm cabling computers. And the next thing I know, there's a flashlight with an EDS security guard and a gun saying, excuse me, who are you? And I look at him and I said, I work for Vern and I'm here to recable his office with, um, uh, with Ethernet so we can get this project done. And he looks at me and he goes, ah, oh, you're one of Vern's guys. Okay. <laughs> uh -huh. And so, yeah. so I think that, that it, the, when we talk about the effect that a leader has on us, uh, chances are that if that leader's having that effect on everyone, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the specific things I remember about Vern is, is, is that people trusted him and you could do stuff because he trusted you. And another um, great thing about Vern that I remember is one time I was working and, and I worked a lot of hours um, at EDS. I've, I've known uh, for working hard. <laughs> uh, Peter nods. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, one time Vern comes into my office and he says, let's let's go to the store. I'm like, I can't go to the store, Vern. I'm working. I got this deadline. He goes, I know. I'm like, you gave me this stuff. He goes, I, I know, I know. Let's go to the store. So we go to the store and we just wandered around the mall. And eventually he thought it was funny, but he found bull ball handbags. He found, <laughs> it's Texas, right? So he found a pair of handbags made out of bull balls. He thought it was hilarious. So he buys it. And then we go back to the office <laughs> and, and I'm like, what? And I'm, I, I realized that what he what he knew was when not to work. And that was his way of saying, you need to just chill for a little bit. Um, mm. Over in my office in the corner there, um, uh, I, I actually have to go get it. So we completed a, a project at EDS and uh, Vern made these for everyone. And if you know what that is, that's a Mobius strip, but it's made out of pewter. And Vern uh, just was a master at recognition. And it, when I first would get these things, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. And then I realized like he knew how to memorialize and, and celebrate the, the accomplishments of the team. And that's a big 
thing that I learned from Vern because I work hard and I don't always remember to create the, the stopping points. And he, his, he, he would take time so that when the um, gifts he would give his teams, they were deeply meaningful. They weren't the, mm. they weren't like a coat that you would hide or a t-shirt. I mean, these were things that you would put on your desk and you would show. Um, and, and I have a set of them in my office from Vern that I still have. Uh, yeah. because they were so meaningful and so thoughtful and, and that's what that, that caring, that thoughtfulness, uh, was amazing. So you leave EDS, you go on to several kind of VP and director level roles at, you know, object space and Oregon systems, a lot of knowledge systems. You did some consulting at Qualcomm over the next several years. Um, I'm curious what stands out to you from kind of that period of your career, um, what experiences in those roles influenced how you think about leadership and organizations today? Yeah, there's, there's so much, right? Cause we're such an accumulation of our experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always tried to capture those and share those with the agile community through the writing and the articles and the, and the books and the teachings. Um, well, one thing that's for sure. And I, and I have a talk that I give every now and that is the distinction between being and doing. And I think Agile is in the domain of being and the methods that we use, like the SAFE and Scrum and DSDM and Evo and Fusion and whatever. Those are all in the domain of doing. And I think we can easily get wrapped up uh, too much in the domain of doing and forget about the domain of being. And I think throughout my career, uh, uh, it's been important for me to try and remember the domain of being. Uh, who am I being in this situation? Sometimes I'm, I'm not always being who I should be or, or who I aspire to be. Um, then you have to do cleanup. You have to say, I'm sorry, or you have to let people know like, hey, look, I just wasn't being my best person and I wasn't my best self. And, uh, uh, and I think that when you allow yourself to do that, you, you, you do end up stronger and better. I think that I also learned that every organization has its own culture, right? EDS's culture was different than Origins, which was different than object spaces, considerably different than object spaces. Mm -hmm. um, uh, none of them better, none of them worse. So you, you start to realize over time that uh, the, the judgment that you have is not absolute, it's more uh, uh, performance-based. Like EDS had great results as a company, so did object space. And Frankly, Origin produced great results very differently. And so the question is, well, is, is, it the, is it an absolute sense of culture or is it kind of, is it working for you? Which is, again, the domain of retrospective. Uh, I, I, Peter, you know that some of the concerns I have about the Agile community is that we retrospect too frequently and therefore the changes we make are too small. We play safe. Uh, we we mm -hmm. play we play small ball a lot in agile. I mean, agile really is about doing tiny things frequently well, and that's the challenge, right? We reward our agile teams for building things within a sprint or an iteration, and by definition, the only thing you can build in a couple of weeks is something small. And yet, our customers reward us when we solve big problems for them. They're not interested in small; they're interested in things that really actually help them move their needle. And those needles, especially in the business world, are big. And frankly, in the consumer world, they're pretty big too. I want you to build me a safer car. Huh. I want you to build me a really fun game. Well, Xbox games and, and PlayStation games are not trivial endeavors right now. There are hundreds of people working a long time. And so and building something fun is not easy. I want you to build a movie that wows me. I want you to, uh, uh, you know, and we just go on and on and on. And so I, I have concerns about that often in Agile, that is that we, we know that there's a lot of virtue in the strategy of small wins as expressed by agility, but, but when we, 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 we can easily forget that we're here to solve these really big, hard problems. And, and, and that's sometimes where things like retrospective practices, your retrospectives should actually be meaningful changes, not like, oh, we need to adjust our meeting time from 10 to 1030. Okay, fine. That's big deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've worked with some teams that, uh, that do bigger ones on a larger cadence. Yeah. 
right? There are probably meaningful tweaks you can make sprint to sprint, but we need to step back and look at the bigger picture. Uh, sometimes you can sometimes you can put those on a cadence, right? Because we benefit from cadence. Sometimes, especially a, a great coach, a great scrum master, or a great team member will recognize there's a big thing bubbling here. And if we don't address it, we're going to start to we're going to start to decline in our ability to do everything. We we need a big one now, right? And those ones feel different, and you plan for them differently, and you conduct them differently, right? When you're going after the big stuff, yeah, absolutely. And and, and I do think that that's the role of wisdom. It, it, wisdom exists in all level. Like a, a really sharp set of scrum masters, because if it's a large organization, they're going to have more than one. And they're going to collaborate and they're going to start to say, hey, look, there's stuff going on here. Like we got to kind of do, we got to dig into this as a team. And those, the, that collection of Scrum Masters are, are amazing. In your time at, I mean, we mentioned it, a, a half a dozen companies there almost, but I'm wondering if there were other leaders that stood out to you in the way that Vern did. Uh, that kind of influenced how you think about your role as a leader today. Yeah, so let me... And it, maybe it's not at the companies, right? But just in general. Yeah, I can pick out leaders in, in all the companies. I, at Origin, um, uh, the patent portfolio management says, uh, company, it was founded by Kevin Rivette. And um, he wrote a book, Rembrandt's in the Attic, which kind of was the first precursor book about patent licensing and intellectual property as an asset. And we built the fir world's first um, uh, data warehouse for patent data. And one of the things I learned from Kevin was after we had had a really successful year, I, Kevin and I, our cubes sat across from each other and, and I leaned over and I said, hey, he's like, what? I said, we had a really good year. He's like, yeah, we did. And I said, and as near as I can tell, nothing we did contributed to our success. And he smiled. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, there were three things that happened that enabled us to be really successful. We didn't do any of them. And he said, well, what were some of the things? And I said, well, you know, the patent office changed the pendency rule. And there's a very complex set of rules here. But for certain kinds of intellectual property, the, the period of time was extended. Very arcane legal stuff, but complex. But it, it created a big demand for our system. And then IBM had introduced something called the, the IBM public patent server. And people were freaked out about searching for patent data on IBM. They would track you. So they bought our system instead. And I kind of explained all this and Kevin said, well, that's, that's what it means to, and he didn't use the word agile, but it was 1997. He said, well, that's what it means to be prepared. Mm -hmm. he, he, we do all this work so that we're prepared. And of course it, it, it harkened back to my days and my days at an athlete, because, you know, you train so hard at an elite level so that when something goes wrong, your body is prepared to respond. A sub, almost pre-conscious thought because it gets into your muscles. And I think that that's part of agility. We do a lot of work so that uh, when something goes wrong and every now and then somebody does, we're prepared. We, we know how to respond. We, we can, it, when we very rarely introduce a bug, we can actually fix it quickly, right? And, and mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that- Or in, in that case, it's not even something going wrong. It's something, it's a business opportunity opening up just in the market. Hey, look at this thing. Can we move quickly to take advantage of it? Sometimes that's luck. Like you happened to be in the right place at the right time and the market changed. It's like, that's the thing we were about to build. Perfect. Uh, but other times it's, you become aware of it and your systems are agile enough. Your processes, your people are agile enough to say, oh, we were looking at this thing over here, but wait a minute, go there quickly because there's an opportunity, right? And are you prepared to do that in the moment? Yeah. And I think another thing that I, that I, I can't kind of pinpoint who taught me this, but one of the things that I've crystallized in my own work with other corporations and the way I say it is it drives me nuts that most agilists and most companies approach their work from a scarcity mindset. We don't have enough resources. The reality is, is you have enough resources. What you have is an abundance of opportunity and your job is to use the techniques that we have available to select the best opportunities. It, it, you don't have a scarcity of resources, I promise you. You do have an abundance of opportunity if you're, if you're working with your customers and working on their problems. And then your job is to do the hard part of like, wow, I've got, you know, I've got a fruit and, you know, I've got a banana and an apple and a pear and they all look really good. Which one am I gonna eat? That's what we're facing.
Yeah, love it, love it. You're, uh, I've heard. So you and you and Richard don't know as each other as well as you and I do, Luke. But uh, you are now speaking the language of Richard Lawrence. So you you yes. both have that same mindset about that very much in common. <laughs> yeah, that resonated a lot. I I tell teams all the time. Nobody ever tells me like Richard. I've got all these teams and I don't know what to do with them. Like, if only we had something good to build. Yeah. Yeah, it's always we, we never have enough resources. And I love the way you put that. Yeah, that's an abundance of opportunities. Yeah, you, the so team people have an abundance of opportunity um, in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that scarcity mindset, that's just not healthy. I mean, and it's also not fun. I mean, you know, uh, the other thing, Peter, that you, you talked about is like, what have I learned? I, I, I really do believe building software and building software enabled products and services is fun. Like it's fun. I enjoy my, I enjoy building stuff and I enjoy helping other people build stuff. And, uh, that, it, that's, I, there was, I wish there was a more articulate way to say it's fun. It's engaging. It's satisfying. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. As I reflect on my career, building products, uh, all of the good teams had a great time doing it. Yeah, it was. We, we loved working on the product. There's there's these moments of like, oh, it's working now. Isn't this cool? And you and you like you know everybody gets the build, and we we're like, look look look, it works now, and it's fun. Everybody has a good time making the thing work. Yeah, yeah and 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 I I also am a student, and as you know, of language and the choice of language and what we mean when we say things, or what people really mean when they say things. And another thing that I often point out to people is is when I work in large corporations and I listen to the language, typically people use the word dependency for broken collaboration. And mm -hmm. and they'll say, oh, you know, we get along with this team really well, we're collaborating here, and then, oh, this team, you know, we're dependent upon them and they're so unreliable and blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of listen and I hone in on, okay, they, you know, where's their healthy human relationships and, and, and interactions? Because people tend to use the word dependency for broken collaboration. Mm, love that distinction. Um, speaking of collaboration, so let's, let's fast forward to the innovation games years. So you're pretty well known in the agile space for that awesome book. Richard's got it on his shelf right behind him. As I he it should. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's how we first met is, you know, me, reading the innovation games book and then uh reaching out to you to do some innovation oh contraire my friend Adobe that's not and... how we first met no how was the first one then uh everyone should know that as as friendly as peter is he's a very discerning man and he does not suffer fools lightly or at all so peter and i met at the 2008 innovation uh, at the 2008 conference when um uh, Cody um, uh, and I were doing a, a, a presentation on uh, innovation games using an example. And Peter walks up to me and says, I read your book and it's really interesting. And I think it works, but I'm a little skeptical and I'm here to experience it myself. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's go. Well, so I, I was sort of right. We did meet because of the innovation games book. I, f I forgot that we, that we first came across each other <laughs> in that context. And I, I vaguely remember uh, walking into that ballroom that day to experience it. And, and I must have had a good experience. Well, you did. We, and we did two, we did, I debuted a new game and, and at the conference. Uh -huh. uh, we did Prune the Product Tree about the growth of, of Agile tools. And then we did My Worst Nightmare of My Worst Nightmare product owner and, and Scrum Master. And what we found was that the, the, uh, the projected evolution of many of the Agile tools were contributing to the worst behaviors of product owners. And, 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 and when we saw all that together, uh, what happened to everyone is, is, as Peter said, yes, this looks good. I want to now take the class. And you took the two-day class. And, and then after the two-day class, um, you were among the early supporters of, of our software platform. And the way that worked out, and again, this is an important lesson. Um, especially for enterprise sales, uh, we we started looking at the platform and Peter said, hey, look, uh, I can help you um, sell your offering to Adobe, but in truth, it's missing three things that Adobe really needs that I just don't feel it's appropriate for me to spend the money at Adobe until you get those things done. I'm like, okay, what are they? And they were right in our roadmap and, and Peter's feedback helped us adjust it. 
So we did the first thing and Peter and I kept in touch. And then we did the second thing. And after the second thing, Peter said, okay, this is far enough along and you've built trust that we'll go ahead and buy the license and, and we'll get the third thing done. And so um, the other element that I love about Agile, so there's there's always so many things to love about Agile. There's always things to improve, but one of the things that Agile done well does build trust. It, it shows consistency. It shows showing up and, and, and building things and doing things. And um, that notion of having a system that you can rely on, having a system, system that you can use and ship and, and, and it gets better. That means a lot. Yeah. Well, so Contenio then, the company that you built to sort of help uh, spread the, the innovation games wisdom as well as to start to sell those products and services related to it and then that grew out of that uh, was something you built from the ground up, whereas your previous experiences were all, you know, I'm working in mostly very large corporations. And I'm, I'm curious about that experience of, you know, like um, how leading Contenio from the ground up, uh, how did that differ from your previous leadership roles? What, what was new for you there? What are your big takeaways from that time? Yeah. If you want to get, uh, if you want to get your arse kicked and if you want to have a lesson in humility, go ahead and start an enterprise software company without any funding. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. If, <laughs> if you want a lesson in, in, in just uh, uh, um, uh, sometimes harder work than expected and sometimes work that, that you didn't want to do. Um, but I, I thought, OK, he, I, I'm going to get funded. I'm, I live in Silicon Valley. Right. So what do I have? I have a book. I have people using my techniques. I have growing customers. I'm going to go get funding from Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley. And it was just no, no, no. Many times it was no in some of the rudest ways possible. Uh, uh, you, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Like I remember one VC, you got to be kidding me. Why did you get it through my handlers? This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Who's going to play games at work? Like really? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just sometimes brutal and you're like, well, okay. I mean, you drive a Porsche, you must know what you're doing. <laughs> I'm not sure those two things are correlated, but okay. <laughs> right? Oh, definitely not causal. Yeah, no. Oh, you were the 30th employee at eBay and it went public. And of course it did it because of you and you made a lot of money in your stock options. Of course you're smarter than I am. I totally get it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Not that there's any sour grapes with that experience, right? No, no. <laughs> no. Uh, so eventually the continual got to the point where we stopped asking for money, right? We just customer funded. Um, and, I'm, I'm, I, and I hate what I'm about to say because it sounds like we were better than we were, but we really did our best to meet our customer needs. But that doesn't mean we were always um, perfectly realizing or best realizing our customer needs. And there were a couple of choices that we made uh, that I don't think served Continuo as well as it could have. I, 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 yes, there was a great outcome, right? We Eventually, the question is going to be the, the company evolved to the point where um, Scaled Agile acquired us. And it was a great acquisition. It was a great outcome. I ended up working for Scaled Agile for a year, really enjoyed it. Uh, I think Dean's amazing. I think the framework team is amazing. Uh, I think it's uh, there's a lot more thought put into Scaled Agile and the Scaled Agile framework than people actually do realize. Um, uh, and I'm proud of my contributions to the framework. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, there are times where we didn't always do the best we could at, at uh, Contenio. And... I remember before I started First Root, I sat down and I really dug into what could I do differently? What could I do better? I went to advisors, I went to some customers, and I had a, I had a very clear list of changes in behavior and changes in company that I wanted to put in place when I started First Root. And, and that was helpful. Could you give us an example of something that might be on that list? Sure. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to share anything that would be uncomfortable. No, to share no, no, no. Well, I mean, you're comfortable it, you know, uh, yeah. the, the, the top three items on that list, and I really wanted to boil it down to three because, as you know, we all know that it, uh, a, uh, an avoidance technique for retrospective improvement is to have 10 items to improve. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I had a list of 20 and I kept at it for a, over a month until I got it down to three. But the top three uh, to this day are, and were and are, one beautiful design. Uh, Peter, you were among the people who pointed out that uh, the Continual platform was uh, utilitarian. I think you were kind in saying one time. And you're like, Luke, you know, this is really fast and it's really functional, but it's kind of ugly. And I did not realize that the non-functional attribute of aesthetics was as critical as it was to success in the modern world. And so my number one commitment at, at First Root is to try and design beautiful software. Uh, and we have an amazing designer, Federico, and I think he does just brilliant work. Now, can we improve? Absolutely. But is the design of First Root and the design of our website and the design of our software materially better and more beautiful? Yeah, it is. And and I'm proud of that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as an investor and a fan of the company, yeah, uh, it looks awesome. Yeah, it's it's and so much it, more beautiful. It feels like a whole different um, approach than, than you had at Continuo. So I can totally see that manifest in what you're doing now. Yeah. And, and for the listeners, Peter has never heard these three things for the record, right? Peter Peter mm-hmm. is an investor in the company, but he never heard me say, I'm going to make my number one thing that I'm fixing from Continuo to First Root is is beauty, is making it beautiful. Yeah. So I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. Richard and I were just commenting, we're, we're in the process of switching one of our software tools from one that uh, was kind of did what it was supposed to do, but uh, we couldn't get any engagement with it. And and we just switched over to this other platform, and all of a sudden it's working. And really, the only, there's not there's not a lot of functional difference, but the design of it is so much more engaging that people want to be there. It's really interesting to see how powerful that is. Yeah, yeah. And and the other related part of that is, I am more even more fearless than I was at Continuo for changing things quite radically. And right now, mm-hmm. I authorized a very radical change in the company. We. The phases of participatory budgeting, for the listeners, participatory budgeting is a democratic process in which a group of people collaboratively choose how to manage a set of shared resources. We use that in schools to teach civic engagement, design thinking, and financial literacy. And it's a very simple process. We teach kids how to manage money by giving them money to manage. So we go into schools. Uh, we acquire some funds from PTAs, from the principal, or from philanthropic organizations like Rotary or even corporate social responsibility programs. And somewhere, it's usually between two and $10,000. And we put the kids in control of the money, but we support them through a five-phase process. Uh, and Peter, we just released uh, and we just announced that our original names of the process were very engineering and utilitarian. They were planning ideation, refinement, voting, and implementation. Now that sounds like Luke wrote him as Luke the engineer, and mm-hmm. uh, which is true. But in one of our um, customer research interviews, we found a school doing uh, participatory budgeting and we interviewed the people leading it. And they said, you know, the way everyone else talks about those phases is like this, but we wanted to create some uh, things that were more aspirational for the students and more design oriented. So we created the 5D process. And I'm like, really, what is that? And they said, discover, dream, design, decide, do. I'm like, oh, it's brilliant. Exact same phases, but unlocks completely different feelings and thinkings. And I brought it to my team and I said, team, we're changing. And they're like, Luke, it's easy to change the software. What about everything else? We've got documentation, website, PDFs, curriculum, videos. Everything has to be redone. And I said, I know. But that's just work on the backlog. So enumerate what needs to be done, put it on the backlog, and let's change it because it's the right thing to do. And and Peter, I'd say that associated with this, this commitment to beauty is the commitment to truly change things that I don't know if I would have changed that at Continuo. I don't know if I would have been mm-hmm. too fearful at Continuo and I would have held back and said, wow, we have all these other things. 
we have to redo everything. Oh, we shouldn't do it. And now I'm more like, yeah, we, we're going to redo everything and it's okay. Um, okay. Number two of the, of the three things. Um, Contenio did not have a published and solid API. We had an internal API. And when we started the company, uh, APIs weren't a thing like they are now. Now APIs are a thing. And so we're about to release the uh, first root API. That's a proper, modern, documented GraphQL API because modern world, uh, modern systems need an API. And, and that's the second thing is like, we missed out on the integrations and the, and the kind of the playing in that ecosystem. And then the third thing is, is a growth posture, not just a growth mindset, but a growth posture. So I think it's one thing to say, I've got a growth mindset, but I think it's another thing to say that, um, uh, we expect the organization to grow and we are expecting to hire more developers. We're expecting to do things. And so certain choices we're making are not based on a growth mindset, but are literally based on the expectation that the company will get bigger. And I sometimes at Contenio, uh, we got to a certain size and it was really comfortable because growth can be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when Contenio got to a certain size, we're like, yeah, we're really comfortable. and We're, we're making acceptable progress. Um, but the aspirations of First Root are such that we just need to grow and we know it. And so this, this, this growth posture, which is in some ways bigger than a growth mindset, is the third uh, thing that we're committed to. Huh. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have any specific examples of how that, because I can see all the specific examples of number one of design, like we're going to make it beautiful. What are, and I think the API choices are pretty concrete. What's a, what would be a concrete example of we're taking a growth posture at first root? What, what do you do differently because of that? Um, we are working much harder on creating uh, channel programs and, and channel partners where we're really treating the, the partners as uh, partners, like like full. Um, and I think we did a, a pretty good job at Contenio with our innovation game certified facilitators and certified instructors. But at times we didn't really enable people as well as we should, meaning it's like I remember one time thinking, and this is this is a you know petty on my part for sure. But I remember one time a facilitator called me up and they said, "Luke, we need this." And I remember thinking to myself, like, "You got to be kidding me! I gave you a book, I taught you a class, I gave you a template, and now you're asking for this." And that was me just being petty and small. And so the growth mindset is trying to take a design thinking. Um, approach not just to what the students are doing or what the teachers are doing, but to what our, our what our partners are doing, and just saying, you know, there's that funny Jim Carrey movie. I think I think it's Jim Carrey where he just says yes. Uh huh. It's yeah. I try to imagine that. Like I'm just going to say yes. Like will you ask me for something and the growth. If yes, like yep, we're going to support you. Right. Yes, it's more work for me. I don't care. I, I'm not going to feel petty about that anymore. Yes. So that's a that's a concrete manifestation of, of 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 that growth posture that really moving beyond a growth mindset. I think it goes a little bit back to what we started with, which was um, a certain amount of self belief. That then, you know, you mentioned the the huge role that other people believing in you played in your own development, and now it's a believing in the mission of First Root, and it's vitally important in the world. Like there are several aspects of it. It's vitally important in the world that kids learn how to <laughs> how to deal with money. It's even more vitally important that they learn tools to collaborate with people that they, maybe they don't see eye to eye with on everything. Uh, it's it's uh, like life changingly important that we figure out how to fix democratic processes across the world for how decisions are made. So there are a lot of important things, and it, it seems to me like your belief in the importance of solving those problems uh, is, is the thing that says it's going to grow. It's not, it's not a growth mind. It's a growth posture. And that's really a firm belief that this mission is so important that I'm just going to figure out how to make that 
scale. Yes. To solve I mean, that it's, problem. it's that simple. I, I do believe our democracy in the United States is precarious for lack of a better term. Um, I, 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 I am concerned and, and the data, uh, uh, for the listeners, it's, it's really profound. Uh, Tufts university, uh, published a report uh, last year called the Republic is still at risk. The latest data says that one in four millennials believe that democracy is a bad way to run the country because they see such dysfunction in Congress. And we we can kind of become immune to this, right? We're like, oh yeah, Congress is dysfunctional, you know. No, it, it's not like that. It's our children are seeing this. It's kind of like a child who grows up in a family where mom and dad never hug or mom and dad never show affection or mom and dad drink too much or mom and dad are abusive. That child is influenced by that environment. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, it doesn't, no, it matters. And our children are being influenced by bluntly Facebook, which is manipulating them to become more polarized in their opinions, less tolerant, less likely. And, and, and some of the things that people do to mean well, Peter, are actually making it worse. So even when people are doing things that they think are gonna make it better, because they don't understand uh, human psychology or collaborative processes, it makes it worse. And I'll give you my favorite example. There are a number of budget simulators out there on the internet. And the idea of the budget simulator is you're going to go to this website and you're going to simulate choices to help balance the budget. Because like balancing the budget is an important thing. Okay. So let's say that you're moderately democratic. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't mean uh, a, a democratic as in democracy, democratic as in democratic party. You're, you're moderately, mm -hmm. you're moderately leaning left. So you're center left mm -hmm. and you go to one of those websites and you start to work with that problem and you make some choices that are, you would say would be center left. Well, you realize that you can't balance the budget, but because you're not in collaboration with anyone, you start to become more extreme in your behavior and your decision to get to the balanced budget, meaning your goal is balancing the budget, not creating a democracy or not creating a democratic process, and you're alone. So you start to spin on your own headlamp, your head loop. By the time you're done, you claim victory, you balance the budget because you went extreme left and you say, cut out all military spending. Now, let's say you're center right and you try to balance the budget and you, 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 know, you make your adjustments. Same thing happens, except when you're done, to get the budget balanced according to your initial starting condition, you had to become more extreme, right? And what we find is that there's a collection of online platforms, Facebook and others, that are designed to create extremism because extremism is what draws you in, it, it sells. And what we need is that um, um, compensatory process to extreme behavior, which is collaboration. Hey, Peter, is that really what you meant to do? Did you really mean that we should have zero military spending? Do you know what that means? Right. And and right. and you see that in, in all forms of collaborative decision making. Uh, is is that's why it works? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm very firmly, uh, I, I you know, first root is a mission. Um, uh, and, and uh, hopefully it's the right mission at the right time. Mm, yeah, I hope so too. Um, Luke, to wrap it up, what advice would you give to our listeners, people, whatever their role is, uh, that are trying to humanize their work, to be more agile, to be more effective collaborators? What advice would you give? Yeah, I, a lot of this is the same advice that you'll get in other places, but maybe it maybe it comes through a little differently. I, I think the first is every now and then be aware of, of the being versus doing distinction. And it's so hard and, and being wrapped up in the middle of the being and the doing, but at times if you can reflect on who you're being, what's, you know, how is that posture? Um, for me personally, it's learning to ask for help. I grew up really poor and I, I do have a, a, an ability to work hard. And uh, so my normal response pattern is like, when things go wrong, I'm just gonna power through something. 
And many times when things aren't going well, you need to ask for help. So I think that uh, remembering to ask for help is, is kind of one of those generic pieces of advice that's actually harder than most people realize to follow. Mm-hmm. To ask, just ask for help. Um, mm-hmm. Agile teams are the shizzle for a reason, right? We, we, we support each other as a team. Um, and the last thing, I guess, is I would remember that uh, two things. One is remember that our customers are asking us to solve big problems. And a lot of agile is about um, discipline of, of refinement and a discipline of decomposition. Right? How do I decompose something into smaller pieces? How do I refine them so I know how to get to done done? And how do I periodically retrospect to improve? Like these are all really basic things, but if you actually do them, they're the things that help. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> I am so honored to be talking with you, Peter and Richard. I mean, um, uh, you're people I admire and people I follow, and and I I don't I don't say that lightly, right? I I do admire you guys, and I admire what you're doing. I believe in what you're doing, and. For the listeners, um, you know, as, as, as the organizations I'm working with, I, I uh, are trying to be more humanized and more humanizing. Um, uh, I got turned on to Teal organizations through Peter and I read the book and I, I remember a couple of times I would call Peter up and I'm like, I'm afraid to do this, Peter. And Peter's like, yeah, most people are and it's okay. And let's talk <laughs> through what that means. And and I've been able to move towards that, but but it's okay to be scared too. I, I think even in my advanced gray hair age, um, it's actually good to be a little scared every now and then of the changes you're making. It's probably a good thing. Yeah, I think if you're not a little scared of the changes, they're probably not big enough, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Luke. We really appreciate your time. This definitely goes both ways. Uh, Rich and I refer to your work and your thinking and our conversations with you frequently when we're working with companies and, and in the way that we talk about our own company. So thank you for all that you've done and thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode and want more content like this, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also love it if you shared the podcast with friends, family, and coworkers who you think might benefit from learning more about how to make work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. If you want help humanizing your work, you can find out more about our products and services at humanizingwork.com. We spend so much of our lives working, so let's make that investment meaningful for us and for all the people connected to it.